<laughs> Yay. This Sunday morning, uh, we will not have kids' church uh, at Redeemer. It is our desire not only that uh, worship is taught, but that worship is also caught. Uh, and so occasionally, uh, whenever we have uh, the Lord's Supper and we celebrate the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, uh, we will have our children stay with us all through children's, all throughout the morning service. Uh, that means that we understand that, that it's going to be loud, uh, that, uh, that they're going to uh, be busy, that they're going to be uh, moving around and, and talking, and that's okay. Uh, because Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of God. And so we want our children to be able to see mom and dad in worship. We want them to be able to see mom and dad uh, uh, sit and listen uh, to the word of God being preached. We want them to be able to experience the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so for that reason, occasionally throughout the year, we will have our children stay with us during, uh, during the morning worship service. So I just ask for a little bit more long-suffering uh, on this morning whenever the kids are uh, rambunctious, but uh, we are excited uh, that we can have them with us in the morning. It would be, uh, it is always a blessing to have kids in church rather than the opposite. For the church to be silent, uh, for there not to be the pitter-patter of little feet, for there not to be uh, crayon on the walls, and there not to be uh, uh, trash everywhere because kids destroy things. Uh, but I've been in places where there aren't any children and where there is no life. And I would much rather have to fix things and repair things and deal with children uh, than the other. So uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 21. Uh, it was so great. Uh, last week, we had planned on leaving to go on vacation uh, before church, and so we're planning on being gone, and so... Uh, Steve preached, and, and then at the last minute, we changed our plan, so I actually got to come and worship at Redeemer instead of come and lead worship at Redeemer, and that was different. It was really, really weird sitting out there, listening to someone else preach up here, uh, but Steve did a wonderful job. Uh, but because, uh, because we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 22, the fig tree this morning, you can't preach the fig tree without understanding the context of the cleansing of the temple. So as Steve told you, I will probably go back and re-preach what he preached last week. So, so in order to fulfill prophecy, I'm going to go back and I'm going to re-preach what he, I'm going to, I'm going to retouch on some of the passages uh, that Steve looked at last week. So Matthew chapter 21, we're going to read verses 12 through 22. Matthew 21 verses 12 through 22. And Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer. You are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And he said to them, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes thou hast prepared praise for thyself? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now in the morning when he returned to the city, he became hungry. 
And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. And seeing this, the disciples marveled, saying, How did this fig tree wither at once? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith, and do not doubt, you shall not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to the mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it shall happen. And all these things you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are in complete control. Lord, I thank you that your authority is always on display. We pray this morning as we look at Jesus, as we look at his actions in the temple as we look at his cursing of the fig tree, Lord, may we be able to make application to our own lives. May we be able to recognize the authority of Jesus in us. And may you find us obedient. Lord, this morning, may your Holy Spirit move in and amongst us as the word of God is preached. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me back up for just a few moments and set the stage for what is going on. This is, according to Matthew, this is Jesus' first time that he goes to Jerusalem. Now, we know because of the other Gospels, we know that Jesus has entered into Jerusalem uh, at least a couple of other times before this. And we know, according to John's Gospel, that this is the second time that Jesus cleanses the temple. And for most of us, that really doesn't mean a whole lot. But let me, let me kind, of, kind of set the stage and, and understand, let us understand what's going on in the ancient world at this time during this week so that we can understand the gravity of Jesus's, of Jesus's actions here. Uh, there is some extra biblical sources that give us an idea of how many people were in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area about this time. During the week of Passover and the week leading up to Passover, uh, estimates are anywhere from half a million people to to 2 million people were in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas. A couple decades after Jesus, there was a census taken by, by Roman authorities, and the Roman authorities discovered that during Passover, that there was approximately 250,000 lambs that were slaughtered during the Passover celebration. Now understanding, understanding that, that, one, lamb, that, that one lamb would, uh, would be able to, to cover the sin, according to the Levitical law, of up to 10 people, of up to 10 people, then we can conservative, conservatively guess that there was about two and a half million people that offered a lamb for sacrifice during that year of the Passover understanding that the lambs were offered by those who who were of means and that there were probably many, many pilgrims that came to Jerusalem that were offering pigeons or doves that was allowable by the law, that we can probably guess that there were multiple millions of people in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas during the week of Passover. It's also important to note that Annas is in complete control. 
we understand that Jesus, upon his arrest, is not brought to Caiaphas, who was the acting high priest, but was brought to who? Annas. If you go to John's Gospel, if you go to John's Gospel and you look at John chapter 18, uh, I didn't give this to you, Chris, I'm sorry, I just thought about it. Uh, if you go to John's Gospel, John chapter 18, verse 12, so the Roman, co the Roman cohort and the commander of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And he led them to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Now, according to the Jewish law and according to the Jewish custom, a high priest is high priest for how long? Everybody, we all know this, right? We've all studied our Levitical law, right? No, the high priest becomes a high priest, and he's the high priest for life. This is not, this is not American democracy. This is not term limits. This is not uh, that you can only serve as the president for two terms, and you can only serve unless you're, unless you're FDR. Uh, but but if, if you are a high priest, you are a high priest forever until you die. Well, the Romans didn't like that. The Romans said, no, no, we're going to put term limits. And so you can only serve as the high priest for a certain period of time. And then someone else has to serve as the high priest. And so whenever Annas' time was up, Annas appoints Caiaphas to be the high priest. And Caiaphas is Annas' son-in-law. Well, if you're a Jew and you recognize not Roman authority, but you recognize Jewish authority, Who's the high priest? Annas. Now Caiaphas is high priest, but Caiaphas is high priest in name only. There is a reason in John chapter 12 that whenever the Romans arrested Jesus, they didn't take Jesus to Caiaphas. They took Jesus to Annas. Because even though they recognize that, that we know Roman authority says that Caiaphas is the high priest, that real authority rested with Annas. He was the high priest. He was the high priest recognized by the Jews. He was the high priest that carried all the authority. Caiaphas was going to do what Annas told him to do. Not only was there millions of people in Jerusalem, not only was Annas in complete control, but I want us to understand that corruption was rampant. This was, for lack of a better comparison, this was the Godfather. You say, well, preacher, where in the world are you getting this from? There's one man who's in control, Annas. Annas is running Jerusalem. His son-in-law is the high priest. Who do you think is sitting at these tables exchanging the money? Who do you think is in charge of determining whether or not these sacrifices are fit to be offered? Those people who are either related to Annas or those people who are doing exactly what Annas wants them to do. This is organized crime. What would happen in, in this day and age is a pilgrim and his family would take the trek to Jerusalem. And if they had means, they would bring with them a lamb to be slaughtered. And while they brought that lamb to be slaughtered, they would have to care for this lamb all along the trip. It would cost them 
hundreds and thousands of dollars to, to not only pay for the trip and the pilgrimage for them and their family, but to, to, to take care of this lamb and to feed this lamb and to make sure that this lamb was cared for all along the trip. And they finally make their way into Jerusalem. And as they make their way into Jerusalem, they go to the temple because they have to present this unblemished lamb to, to, the, to the priest and to those who are working in the temple and the Levites. And as they enter into Jerusalem and they present this lamb, there in the outer courts of the temple are Annas's cohorts. And they lead this lamb in. And a priest stands up and begins to inspect this lamb because only an unblemished lamb is qualified to be offered as a sacrifice. And so they begin to inspect this, this animal. And they recognize that, well, it, it's, it's got a patch of, of matted fur here. It, it's, it's, it's not quite up to the standard. And so while you have spent all this money caring for this lamb and feeding this lamb and lodging for this lamb as you travel for weeks, possibly even months, to get to Jerusalem, Sorry, but this lamb is not fit for sacrifice. But, but, but we understand that it's cost you a great deal, so, so we'll buy it from you. Now, obviously, it's not fit for sacrifice, so we can't offer you a premium for it. But, but we can at least give you something. And so they offer them a few shekels. And they say, well, since... Since you brought a lamb, clearly you're of means, so you don't qualify to buy one of the doves or the pigeons. So you'll have to purchase a lamb from us. It just so happens that we, we are prepared for such an occasion as this. And just behind the outer courts of the temple, there's a, there's a pen where we keep lambs for slaughter. And you can buy one of these from us. Now, obviously, you know, it's going to be a little bit more expensive because you know, we've had to care for it. We've had to ship them in and, 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 and there's we have to cover our expenses and so they they gouge the prices and they charge this family an exorbitant amount for this lamb and they have no choice but to pay it and then they take the lamb that they just bought for pennies on the dollar and they walk it around in the back and they put it in the very same pen that they pulled out that other lamb for and the next family that comes up they do the exact same thing and they are making hundreds of thousands, possibly even millions of dollars off of the Levitical laws that God has set up to portray the redemption of his people. This is organized crime. That's all it is. People that are coming in with different currencies and they're having to exchange it in order to get the Jewish shekel. They are, they are gouging them and this is organized crime. Corruption was rampant. And the first time Jesus cleansed the temple, Annas and his family lost hundreds of thousands of, temple, uh, of, of money when Jesus cleansed the temple. And make no mistake about it, Annas made a note of this Jesus from Nazareth. And the next time he comes into Jerusalem, Anna says, I want to know when this man comes into Jerusalem. You let me know 
the next time this Jesus of Nazareth shows up in Jerusalem, the next time he shows up in the temple, you let me know. It's also important for us to understand that Jewish nationalism was at its pinnacle as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Remember the triumphal entry? As Jesus is entering, what are they crying? What are they saying? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are literally saying, save us, Messiah. The Messiah, the anointed one from God, the one whom has been prophesied of old, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the setting leading up to Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And I want to point out to us, the temple and the sacrificial system was always intended to be a picture of God's redemption for his people. The temple, the sacrificial system, the tabernacle was never intended, never intended to be the means of salvation. Jesus was always intended to be the means of salvation. Revelation chapter 13 tells us that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. That Jesus was always God's intention for his eternal redemption of his people. The sacrificial system was always intended to be a symbol, was always intended to be a foreshadowing of that which was to come. If you'll go with me to Hebrews chapter uh, chapter 9, you can see this. Hebrews chapter 9, I want to point out to you that the author of Hebrews understood that the sacrificial system was never intended to be the means for salvation. It was always intended to be a picture of God's means for salvation. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to start reading in verse 6. We're going to read verses 6 through 12. Now, when these things had been prepared, these things talking about the, the sacrificial system, the, the, all of the, uh, the burnt offering, the sacrifice, the, uh, the guilt offering, verse 6. Now, when these things had been prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second only, the high priest, talking about the Holy of Holies, the high priest enters once a year, not without taking of blood for which he offers for himself and the sins of the people, committing in ignorance. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. Look at the verse 9. For this is a symbol, which is a symbol for this present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make worshipers perfect in conscience. And so the author of Hebrews says that the sacrifices and the gifts and the offerings made are a symbol. And they cannot make us perfect. They cannot cleanse us. They cannot make us holy. It is always intended to be a symbol. Verse 10. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The temple and the tabernacle and the priest's intercession for the people and the goats and the lambs and the 
pigeons and the doves and the, the burnt offering and the blood offering. That was all a picture. It was all a foreshadowing. It was all a forerunning of Christ. It was always intended to point to Christ. Whenever the Passover institution was set up, it was done so as a commemoration of the Passover lamb. Whenever God God delivered the Israelites from the Egyptian people and he spared them from death because of the Passover lamb, which was always a picture of Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament, every jot, every tittle, every description, every story, all points to Jesus. From Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel to Noah to Exodus, everything points to Jesus. Everything. And as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple. And as he cleanses the temple, Jesus reveals his authority. His authority is on display. And I want to point out very, very quickly, Jesus' authority is on display over several different venues. His authority is over the temple. Jesus displays his authority over that of Annas, over that of Caiaphas. He says, I am not in subjection to anyone. I do not have to go to Annas and ask for his permission to go and and cleanse the temple. In fact, he does it in complete defiance of Annas' authority and Annas' control. And he demonstrates his authority over the temple. Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus has already illustrated that he has authority over the temple. Matthew chapter 12, verse 6 tells us, But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. And who is Jesus referencing? Himself. Jesus has authority over the temple. Jesus has authority over the religious leaders. He doesn't care what they say. We see all throughout Matthew's gospel whenever Jesus Jesus heals on the Sabbath and Jesus does this on the Sabbath and and Jesus ignores the, the, the rabbinic teaching. We see the whole Sermon on the Mount whenever Jesus said, you have heard it said, you have heard it taught that thou shalt not commit murder. But I say to you, I have authority over these rabbinic teachings. I have authority over the religious leaders. Jesus has authority over the religious leaders. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us that, that Jesus is a greater high priest. Look, it says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. That Jesus is greater than any earthly high priest that we will ever see. Jesus has authority over the temple. Jesus has authority over the religious leaders. Jesus has authority over all disease. It's interesting, in Matthew chapter 21, right after Jesus cleanses the temple, overturns the money changers, drives them out of the temple courts, who enters? Look at what it says. Go with me if you will, Matthew chapter 21, verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. It's interesting, according to Jewish law, the blind and the lame were not allowed in the temple. They were only allowed in the outer courts. In the midst of Jesus' divine wrath, we see Jesus' divine compassion. 
he makes a way for those who were once ostracized, who were once alienated by religion, and says, come and find healing, find redemption, find reconciliation. Jesus has authority over the religious leaders, and Jesus has authority over all disease, over all sickness. Jesus has complete authority. The the Levitical law says that the sick and the lame and the blind are not allowed in the temple. Jesus says, come, come. For the physician did not come for the well, but for those who are sick. Jesus has authority over all creation. He goes out from the temple. And as he goes out from the temple, he sees a fig tree. Let's look at the text, verse 19. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it. And he found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you, and at once the fig tree withered. I want to point out that this cursing of the fig tree happens on the tail end of Jesus' cleansing the temple. There is a direct correlation to what Jesus does in verses, uh, in verses 18 through 22 to what Jesus has done in verses 12 through 17. As Jesus curses the fig tree, Jesus is making a, a comparison of the fig tree to the temple. He walks to the fig tree, and he sees nothing on the fig tree but leaves. Now, it's important to note that one of the other synoptic gospels makes mention, it says, this was not the season for figs. No one would have ever found figs on this fig tree at this time of year. And so it, it seems unfair that Jesus would walk to this fig tree, see no figs on this fig tree, and say, well, you're not doing what you're supposed to do, and cursing it withers. That's not fair. But what would have been on this fig tree, and anybody who farms, anybody who has planted a tomato plant in the pot in their backyard, anybody who has, who has planted cucumbers along their fence, anybody who has planted anything understands that before a plant bears fruit, it buds. It's going to bud. It's going to flower. And through those flowers, it becomes pollinated. And as it's pollinated, those, those flowers turn into, turn into immature fruit. And over the years, over the, over the months, that, that fruit matures and it becomes ripe and it becomes ripe and it is good for fruit. It's interesting that in Matthew chapter 21, verse 19, Jesus sees this fig tree and sees nothing on this fig tree but leaves. No buds. No flowers. This being Passover, it was about six to eight weeks before it would have been time to harvest the figs. There should have been buds, which is a foreshadowing of the fruit. The buds, the flowers, was a symbol of what was to come. When you see buds and when you see flowers, one of my favorite things, I, 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 I began, uh, inadvertently, I began gardening. I, I, I turned into an old man overnight. A couple of years ago, we, 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 we started planting, we planted a little, a little garden in the back of my dad's house, and, 
and, and I said, this is, this is great. And so I began, I began planting cucumbers and bell peppers and, and, and tomatoes and, and, and even the, the flower beds. I'll go and I'll spend hours out in the, out in the, the yard. And, and my wife's like, what are you doing? Why, why are you out here? I'm like, I'm looking at my plants. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at my plants and, and, and I'm picking through the leaves and I'm looking at, at all of the little buds and all of the blooms and all the flowers. And in, April, in March and in April and after, after you've planted and after you've cultivated the soil, you go through and, and, and you're counting the number of flowers on your tomato plants and you're counting the number of, of, of buds and, and when, when the squash begins to take off and those all of a sudden overnight you see flowers everywhere and, 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 and you see the little baby squash that's coming up. It is exhilarating because you know what's coming. You know that, that these buds and these flowers are indicative of, of the harvest that is to come. Remember what we said earlier in the sermon? The temple was always to be a portrayal of what was to come. And as Jesus entered into the temple, he saw no buds. He saw no flowers. He saw no indication of that which was to come. He saw no portrayal of the Messiah that was coming. He saw no portrayal of the redemption that was around the corner. He saw no portrayal of, of the, the sacrificial system symbolizing the death, burial, and resurrection of the coming Christ. He walks out to the fig tree. He sees no bud. He sees no flower. He sees no foreshadowing of that which is to come. And he curses the fig tree. Symbolic the cursing of the temple. The temple showed no foreshadowing, showed no symbolism of the Christ that was to come. And for that reason, there would never be any fruit to ever come from the temple anymore. Just a few years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the temple will be destroyed by the Romans, never to be rebuilt. Go to Jerusalem now. The only thing you see of the temple is the Western Wall. And that's it. There would no longer be any fruit that would come. It's interestingly enough, Israel has a very distinct expectation of the Messiah. They expect, and we see this from the disciples. We see this from the disciples' interaction with Jesus. They, they come to Jesus. James and John come to Jesus. Let me sit on your right hand and me sit on your left hand. They, they are asking Jesus, you know, is this is now the time where you're going to establish your kingdom? They, they see a very, a very political kingdom. And as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, being that he is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one who is coming on behalf of God, the one who is coming to overthrow in the Israelites mind overthrow the Roman government where would one think that the Messiah would go as he entered into Jerusalem he would go to the palace he would go to the praetorium he would go to the place of political power yet Jesus makes his way to the temple communicating to the people 
that Jesus, his intention was never to overthrow political power. His intention was always a spiritual intention. Israel expected Jesus to overthrow Rome, yet Jesus went to the temple to overthrow the religious elite. Jesus went to the temple to establish his authority over the temple, his authority over the religious leaders, his authority over all disease, his authority over all of the earth. Jesus goes into Jerusalem for the sole purpose to demonstrate his authority. And as he demonstrates his authority, he reveals his authority to us. I want to ask a question to us, church. Do we recognize Jesus' ultimate authority in our lives? Because the scripture tells us that Jesus is in complete authority over all things. That he is in authority over life. He is in authority over death. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. Verse 18, it tells us that whether they're thrones, dominions, powers, rulers, and authorities, that Jesus is in complete control over all those things, and all those things were created by him and for him, and they operate through him, and that he sustains, he holds all things together, that Christ is the ultimate authority over all things, and newsflash, church, you did not give him that authority. So many of us have, have, have heard things like, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior when I was seven, but I made Jesus the Lord of my life when I was 16. I accept Jesus as my Savior whenever I was 23, but, but it wasn't until I was 40 that I made him the Lord of my life. Newsflash, church, you don't have the authority to make Jesus the Lord of your life. He and he alone has the authority. Acts chapter 2, I want you to understand something. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. As Peter is proclaiming the gospel for the first time after Pentecost, Peter makes this statement. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He said, let all the house of Israel know for certain. Let all of the house of Israel, let every Jew know this for certain, that God hath made him, Jesus, Lord in Christ. Notice what's first. Lord. God made Jesus Lord. You can't make God the Lord of your life. God's already done it. He's already beaten you to it. When we're sharing the good news of the gospel, church, we're not campaigning for Jesus. He's already in office. We don't have to get votes for Jesus. All we have to do is tell people who he is. He is the Lord of glory. He is the King of kings. And he came to this earth, and in the midst of divine wrath, he showed compassion. In the midst of judgment, he said, God loves you. So much so that those who were ostracized, those who were aliens, those who were sinners, Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why? Because he's Lord, and he's the only one who's able to do that. God made him both Lord and Christ. Philippians chapter 2. Paul says it like this. If you don't like the way Peter says it, Paul says it a little bit differently, but it means the same thing. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, And being found in the appearance as a man, he, he being Christ, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. Because of Christ's obedience, because of his humility, verse 9 Therefore, 
Anytime we see therefore in the Bible, we should look, why is it therefore? For this reason, God highly exalted him. Who exalted him? God did. God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, both in heaven and earth and under the earth, and at the name of Jesus every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It doesn't say that he is Savior. It says that he is Lord. I want us to understand something, church, that the Saviorhood of Jesus is nestled neatly in his Lordship. He is Savior because he is Lord, and only because he is Lord. Whenever the angels made the proclamation of Jesus' birth, listen to what they said. For today I bring you good tidings of great news, which is born to you a Savior. Who is he? He is Christ the Lord. Jesus is Lord. And we have one response. We can either bow before him now, or we'll bow before him later. Jesus is Lord. And as he entered into Jerusalem, He played no games with the religious leaders. He played no games with the religious elite. He walked into Jerusalem. He said, whatever this is that's going on, whatever this religion is, it's a farce. It makes me ill. And in righteous indignation, he drove out all of the money changers, all of the priests, all of the Levites, and he brought in sick, the lame, the blind, the children, those whom the world, those whom the religious elite had ostracized. And he said, I'm Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the question I have to you this morning, church, is, is Jesus the Lord of your life? The answer to that question is yes. Have you surrendered to that? Have you recognized that? Are there areas in your life that you are relinquishing control, that you are are unwilling to relinquish control, that you're holding on to for selfish motives, for selfish reasons? Maybe you're afraid that that if I give up this area of my life that that God will ask me to do something or that, 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 that there will be some long, some elongated period of of suffering and hardship if I'm obedient to the Lord. Scripture tells us that obedience always brings blessings, brings grace, brings mercy. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you'll find rest. Will you pray with me? God, we recognize that you are Lord. That you are Lord and that nothing that we have done, nothing that we will do, nothing that we will ever do changes that. Lord, we recognize that you and you alone are Lord. If there are those here this morning who've been trying to run your life, you've been trying to make all of the decisions based upon based upon worldly wisdom. Let me invite you this morning to know that you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to know how to fix all of the problems in your life. 
Jesus simply asks that you trust Him. That you surrender your life to Him. If this morning you've been trying to do, trying to fix everything in your life, trying to put all the pieces back together, may you cease striving, may you be still and know that He's God. There's some of you here this morning that need to surrender your life to Christ for the very first time. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come. There are those who are here this morning who need to make Redeemer your home. There are those here this morning who need to serve the body of Christ right here. If that's you, I want to invite you to come. In just a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. One of the admonitions that the Apostle Paul gives us is that we not partake in the Lord's Supper if we know that we are in broken relationship with our brother or sister in Christ. Maybe you need to come to this altar during this time of invitation and seek forgiveness from God. Maybe you need to go to somebody in the body of Christ, in the church, and seek their forgiveness. May during this time of invitation, the Holy Spirit have its way in this place this morning, and may you find yourself obedient. We ask this in Jesus' name.